Let's open up these ancient words that are still living and active and changing lives across planet Earth today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7 is our text for this morning. It's on page 932 in your pew Bible. I'll be reading verses 1 to 7 of 1 Timothy 1. Let us hear the ancient words of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, as we study this portion of your word, please grant us your wisdom to understand it, and the will to obey it. We ask this for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. The eyes of the world have been turned to the Middle East ever since Hamas terrorists launched a surprise attack on the nation Israel on October 7th, the Iron Dome defense system was literally overwhelmed as thousands of rockets barraged the nation within a span of 20 minutes. Thereafter, Hamas terrorists surged in on Israel on paragliders, motorboats, and bulldozers. In the initial attack, over 1,200 people were killed, and well over 100 more were taken hostage. Babies, children, women, elderly, disabled were among those taken. One haunting aspect of this whole atrocity is that Israel, by its own admission, was caught off guard. The spokesperson for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, said, and I quote, This is our 9-11. They got us. They surprised us, and they came fast from many spots. I'm so glad Brother Dave prayed for the people involved in that crisis over there. and We need to continue to pray earnestly that lives would be spared and that peace would prevail. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ would change lives. 
without minimizing at all the Middle East crisis, I think there is a spiritual parallel for us to consider. I think many people that are alarmed at the crisis in Israel, as they should be, are not alarmed as we all should be regarding the attack that the church is under. The church, too, is under assault. The church of Jesus Christ is being attacked today from many spots by an enemy who wants to catch us off guard, to disable our defense, to dismantle us and eventually destroy us. While in many parts of the world this is expressed through physical violence, that is not primarily the case here in the United States of America, and certainly not in Western New York. It is not primarily physical in terms of the threat, but spiritual. Furthermore, the attack is so subtle that careless pastors in congregations won't see it for what it is and will wind up like the frog in the kettle. Most of you are familiar with that metaphor, right? If you put a frog in a kettle of boiling water, it'll immediately try to jump out. But if you put a frog in a pot of pleasantly tepid water and then turn up the heat, the frog will eventually stay until it's boiled to death. And the point of that illustration is beware of gradual changes that eventually lead to disastrous consequences. Beware of gradual changes that eventually lead to dire consequences. That is the kind of warning that Paul is issuing to Timothy near the very start of his letter. The portion of Scripture we read just a moment ago. In essence, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. That is a timely message for the church today. And the strategy is simple. Oppose whatever draws people away from gospel truth. Oppose whatever draws people away from gospel truth. This strategy is seen in Paul's commission to Timothy in verses 3 and 4. And then that is followed by, and and it's also readily apparent, in the contrast that Paul then shows between fanciful teachers, false teachers, and faithful teachers that are true to Scripture. This Scripture that we read is immensely helpful in showing us as a church today the danger of doctrinal drift and the importance of tethering ourselves to the truth of Holy Scripture. So let's first look at the commission. The first part of verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Remain at Ephesus. Uh, Paul here is referring to a previous conversation that he had had with Timothy. A conversation that most likely took place after Paul's two-year imprisonment at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, Paul may have been with Timothy in Ephesus and then urged him to stay there as Paul went on to Macedonia. Or perhaps Paul had been traveling elsewhere and by correspondence told Timothy, as I'm going on to Macedonia, you continue to stay in Ephesus. 
Years earlier, during his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, Paul had warned them, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So Paul is telling Timothy to stay put because Timothy would be tempted to leave because Paul's prediction had already come true. The savage wolves were already in Ephesus by the time Timothy returned there. So life for Timothy would have been anything but easy. His natural impulse would have been to just run away from this situation, to to search for more pleasant pastures in which to minister. I can relate to that because that's something I was tempted to do 20 years ago. When I was a pastor in my early 30s at a previous church, and I was probably right around the same age Timothy was when he received this pastoral charge at Ephesus. It is estimated by most commentators he would have been in his young 30s. He faced this tough situation. I was facing a tough situation in my previous church, and things got so bad, I was ready to leave. Just to tell you how bad things got, we had two chairmen of the elder board that resigned their position and left the church within a year of each other. Not because they had a huge issue with me, but because they couldn't handle the heat. Whenever they would come to church on a Sunday morning to worship, they felt like they were going to war because of the conflict in the church. Conflict that was actually taking place even at the leadership level. And my wife, my children, myself, we were all affected by this turmoil that was going on for months, even into years, two, three years. And so I actually went away for a month. I told the elders, look, you can pay me my salary. You don't have to pay me my salary, but I am leaving for a month to get my family away and to think through about what we should do. I consulted with a couple of elders that were godly men that were praying for me and my family, and I thought I was probably going to leave. I was already looking at uh, uh, um, uh, ministry opportunities at other churches. I had my resume ready to go. And yet it was Jesus' words in John 10 that kept me where I was. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. And I was forced to ask myself in that season of my life, am I a hired hand or am I a shepherd? Am I going to stay here or am I going to run away? Well, praise God, the Holy Spirit compelled Ruthie and me to stay. The Lord stood with us and he strengthened us. And following four years of difficult conflict, the Lord blessed us with double the number of years, eight years of good and steady growth, joy and blessing at that church. But Timothy was still on the front end of a tough situation. And so Paul urges him to remain to remain at Ephesus amidst these savage wolves, and then Paul gives him the reason in the second half of verse 3. He says, remain at Ephesus so that, I have that circled in my Bible, so that you may charge certain persons not to preach any different doctrine. 
That word charge is, is the Greek word parangelo. It's a military term that literally means to pass on command from one person to another. So, so Timothy is receiving this charge, this command from Paul. And remember, Paul, we are told in verse 1, is an apostle by command of God the Father. So you see, God is commanding Paul, who is commanding Timothy, who is now commanding these people not to preach any different doctrine. In other words, Timothy's charge here, because it is backed by an apostle of Jesus Christ, backed by command of God the Father, Timothy's charge has the weight of divine authority behind it. This charge was to certain persons. We don't know who those persons were, but <laughs> Timothy sure did. And given Paul's warning in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders that I just referred to a moment ago, that among your own number, men will arise distorting the truth and drawing away disciples after themselves, I think we can safely assume that at least some of these certain people that were propagating this false doctrine were actually elders in the church at Ephesus. They were shepherds, bad shepherds, but they were shepherds of the flock. This is also indicated in verse 20 where Paul names two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul excommunicates from the church rather than having the elders or the church do it, probably because they were so influential in the church, no one had the power in that setting to expel these men. So Paul is an apostle kicks these leaders out of the church. He excommunicates them. Furthermore, we'll find later on in Paul's letter to Timothy, what does he do in chapter 3? He lists for Timothy, here are the qualifications for an elder. And then later on in chapter 5, he says, look, here's how you discipline an elder. Here's how you remove and replace an elder if that situation comes up. So this is no easy task that Timothy is undertaking. He's a young pastor with very influential people in the church that are propagating different doctrine, people that Paul described as savage wolves. Timothy's first assignment, charge them, command them, not to teach any different doctrine. That's one word in the original language, heterodidoscalane. It's a word every commentator says Paul made up. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere in extra-biblical literature. Paul was just trying to coin a term for different doctrine. And so Paul says, tell them not to teach this. And this term that he uses, it's just a compound word that simply means literally doctrine that deviates from a standard. Doctrine that deviates from a standard which shows us that even by now there was already a standard in place of what right teaching was. And we see this in um, Paul's second letter to Timothy where he says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have received that you have heard from me. The teaching of the apostles. In the other pastoral letter to Titus, Paul says that false teachers must be silenced. And then he says to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
So this sound doctrine, based on the truth of Scripture, was the teaching of the apostles. Paul tells Timothy to teach this right doctrine. He tells Titus to teach this doctrine, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is what Jude calls, in his epistle, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The ancient words, if you will. That body of truth, the 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament, is the revealed and authoritative word of God. Paul tells Timothy to command certain men not to teach any different doctrine. Nothing that deviates from the writings of the prophets and of the apostles in Holy Scripture. Paul tells Timothy, command them not to do that. I was thinking that that kind of prohibition is unacceptable in our pluralistic postmodern culture. You can't tell someone that teaching, that belief is wrong. That is erroneous. That is evil. That is false. That is not in accordance with the truth. Because in our society, in our world today, um, I have my truth. You have your truth. Everybody else has his or her truth. And even if they completely contradict each other and are vastly different from one another, they are all equally valid. They are all equally true. And there's so many problems with that. Even if you restrict it to just the world of religion and say, well, it's just in the world of religion that everything is relative. Think about that statement. There is no such thing as objective truth. That statement, there is no such thing as objective truth, and is an objective statement. And so relativism only works if they accept themselves to their own rule. John Stott rightly states, quote, no follower of Jesus Christ can possibly embrace this complete subjectivism, for he said he was the truth, that he had come to bear witness to the truth, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and that the truth will set us free. So truth matters. The truth which God has revealed through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Jesus also told us to beware of false teachers, and so did the apostles. End quote. And that's why Paul told Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Because there's only one truth. Nor to devote themselves, he says in verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Myths and genealogies are closely related with, uh, they, they modify one another. And they refer, in essence, to legendary tales regarding various persons that are listed in Old Testament genealogies. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, you know that there are many genealogies. And, and these teachers were making up fanciful tales that were tied to various persons listed in those Old Testament genealogies. We actually have evidence for this outside of Scripture there are two ancient Jewish texts where we see this. One is called the Book of Jubilees, 
which was written in 125 BC, and the other one is the Biblical Antiquities of Philo, which was written shortly after AD 70, which is just probably less than a decade after Paul wrote these letters to Timothy. So these teachings were already going on. These books go beyond the scriptures to speculate about the biographies of biblical saints. Sort of like maybe biblical novels would today. So they they start with the scripture, but then they kind of fabricate a whole story to make it more interesting. And Paul tells Timothy to command certain persons not to teach any other doctrine. And yet that's what some of these leaders in Ephesus were doing. They started with the Bible, but then they made up the rest as they went along. Their teaching was little more than guesswork. Uh, One commentator wrote that um, the Old Testament became the happy hunting ground for their imaginations. And that same sort of teaching exists today in many bestsellers. Some of you might remember the best-selling book that came out a number of years ago called The Bible Code. How many of you actually have heard of that book? All right, maybe about a fourth of you. So this was a bestseller that came out a number of years ago, and the author, who was an an Israeli mathematician, claimed that he had discovered a hidden code in the Old Testament— that predicted world events that occurred long after the Bible was written. And these events included things such as Watergate, the death of Princess Diana, the Gulf War, various assassinations. And there were Christians and Bible-teaching churches that were totally into this. I mean, this was like this new discovery that they had never seen before. Now we, because maybe we're not in that moment right when that book came out and it's lost kind of that contemporary sensation it had at the time, might say, man, how could they go for that stuff? But I'm going to step on a few toes here because I think many books about the end times do the exact same thing. Many books on Bible prophecy fall into this category and people storm the bookstores when anything ever happens in the Middle East. We see it happening right now with the current conflict in Israel. Every time something happens in the Middle East, people are scrambling for books on Bible prophecy, or they're surfing the internet trying to figure out which prophecies are coming to place. And I would submit to you that with a lot of that reading and dialogue and conversation happening, there's a little bit of scripture and a whole lot of speculation that doesn't profit anybody. Did you know that the cult Jehovah's Witnesses emerged from an Adventist movement in the 1830s that centered on a prediction regarding the date of Jesus' return? Such teaching, Paul says, promotes speculations. Some translations say controversies, questions, these these meaningful, vain, or meaningless, vain dialogues rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. The Greek word for stewardship there, oikonomia, from which we get our word economy, refers to the organization or the ordering of a household or the responsibility of a management that maintains that order in the household. 
And this goes directly to Paul's purpose in writing this letter to Timothy. Smack in the middle of this letter, chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this verse conveys to us, as many verses do in Scripture, that the church's chief responsibility as a gathered assembly in the name of Jesus Christ, is to guard the gospel, to uphold and defend the truth of Scripture. And if we are not careful to do this, then what will happen is divine revelation will eventually be displaced in a church assembly by human speculation. You say, Pastor Matt, is that really a threat? I mean, you mentioned Jehovah's Witness. You know, they're kind of this this marginal cult off Christianity. Let me step on some more toes. Some of the central teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Purgatory, the sinlessness of Mary, the veneration of saints, is not based on Scripture. It's based on human speculation where you take a kernel of truth and then blow it up into the huge doctrine that 10% Scripture-based, they would say, but it's about 90% speculation. Or they'll find extra-biblical resources like the Apocrypha that were not considered to be inspired Scripture to suit what their beliefs want to be, what they want their beliefs to be. And what happens? Such speculation draws people away from the truth of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then you find out that because they've left that foundation of gospel truth, the whole structure of the church is very different from what God in Scripture has ordered it to be. The oikonomia, the economy of God's household is completely out of whack. And the Roman Catholic Church is the world's largest denomination with over 1.3 billion adherents. And somewhere in the early centuries, things just started deviating a little bit more and more and more from Scripture. Until literally millions, even billion, have been led astray. The mere size of an institution such as this should warn us to the dangerous influence of doctrinal drift and should steal our resolve to guard the gospel. Philip Ryken writes, and I quote, Salvation in Christ is the most important thing God has ever planned or accomplished for His people. Therefore, it is the most important message for us to study, to teach, and to live. Nothing should distract us from that message, least of all some idle speculation which goes beyond Scripture. Why waste time when there is God's work to be done? End quote. And this leads us to the contrast. After Paul commissions Timothy to command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine that's connected to myths and endless genealogies. Paul then gives 
a contrast between their kind of teaching and what their mission is and what that produces versus faithful teaching that is true to God's word, true to the apostolic teaching. In verse 5, he says, Paul says to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word charge points us back to verse 3, right? Where Paul commands Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So whereas fanciful teaching, imaginative, speculative teaching gives rise to questions and doubts and to controversies, speculations, faithful teaching produces what, according to verse 5? What does faithful teaching produce? One word. Love. Love. John Piper sums up the essence of this supreme virtue by saying, love is the overflow of joy in God which gladly meets the needs of others. That's a good, concise definition of Christian love. Love is the overflow of joy in God which gladly meets the needs of others. How is such love produced according to this verse? It issues from three internal features that are brought forth by the Word of God, by the Gospel. The first one is what? Look at your word. A pure heart. That's the first internal feature. I love how this reads in the original Greek New Testament. Kathara cardia. Kathara cardia. Why don't you say that with me? Kathara cardia. So kathara is the word that we get our word catharsis from, right? It means cleansing. Cardia is things related to the heart, cardiac. In Scripture, the heart is the core of human personality. It is the origin of our emotions, our affections, our intentions. And we understand that because we still use the word heart in that kind of way today, when we say, I love you with what? With all my heart, right? I love you with all my heart. We're not talking about the physical organ beating inside my chest. We're talking about our innermost self. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 5. Likewise, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Isn't that great news? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But the problem is this. Jesus also said in Mark 7, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgency, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, out of a person's heart, and defiles a person. Likewise, the Lord says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart is even more wicked than you think it is. And so is my heart, and only the Lord knows just how depraved our heart is. Even worse, we are incapable of making our hearts pure. The Lord also says in the book of Jeremiah, 
Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or a leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Friends, what we need God to do, we do not need to turn over a new leaf. What we need is a new life. It's not a matter of reforming myself. It's not a matter of uh, transforming myself. It's not reformation. It's regeneration. It's being born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. God must take out the heart that you currently have and give you a heart that is pliable and moldable and wants to love God. Jesus told the most religious people of his day, the ones that everybody looked up to and said, oh man, these guys are like, they're the most religious people in the land. Jesus said to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup in the dish, but inside you are filthy. You are filthy. You are full of greed and self-indulgence. So left to ourselves, we're dirty and we're damned. When Jesus said, woe to you, he was pronouncing the curse of God on these people who had filthy hearts. But there's good news. And that is this. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity and rose again victoriously from the grave so that people like you and me with filthy hearts can be fully cleansed and forgiven by God. In fact, Jesus told those who believed in him, you are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Those two statements go hand in hand and sum up, in essence, the good news of salvation. And the good news of salvation, listen, is so plain and simple. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, trust Him to save you, and you will be saved. God will take your filthy heart and give you a pure heart. But that's not all. There's a second internal feature that the Word of God produces in the lives of believers, and that is a good conscience. The conscience is a God-created, self-judging faculty within us. It's a person's inner awareness regarding the quality of his or her actions. Paul writes in Romans that our consciences either accuse us or excuse us. Now the problem with our consciences prior to salvation is that they are charred by sin. That's what Scripture says. They're seared. They're charged or charred by sin. Paul writes in his other pastoral epistle to Titus, chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. But praise be to God, the gift of salvation includes a good conscience. 
We are approved by God on account of Christ and have nothing to fear on the final day of judgment. Plus, a good conscience gives us the capacity to serve God now. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Isn't that good news? That it's not just a, a clean account, a clean conscience on the day of judgment. I can have a good conscience right here and right now that gives me the capacity by God's grace to serve Him and actually do what is truly pleasing to the Lord. The life-giving Word of God creates in us a pure heart and a good conscience and thirdly, a sincere faith. That word sincere comes from a Greek word that literally transliterated means unhypocritical. It is an unhypocritical faith. It's a sincere faith. It is a faith that is real, not phony. There's a lot of people that claim to be Christians that say they have faith today, but they do not live out in love. Their lives are not rooted in the truth of Scripture. But Paul says, when God does a work of regeneration in your heart, you are given a pure heart, you are given a good conscience, and you are also given a sincere faith, a faith that is real, a faith that is not fake or phony in any way. Philip Towner writes that the attached adjective to faith, sincere, stresses the integrity and the authenticity and the complete lack of deception of this commitment primarily as seen in the response of the lifestyle that accompanies belief. And that makes sense, right? What did James say? Faith without works is what? It's dead being alone. It's been rightly said that it's faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Because if our faith is sincere, if we really believe what we say we believe, it will manifest itself in how we live. Love, therefore, is the active response to God's grace, which is expressed in sacrificial service that's done on behalf of others. The grace of God, through the truth of the gospel, creates in us a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith that issues love. So think of it this way. God's word comes to me. God does a creating work within me. I am born again by the Spirit of God. And when God's Word does its transformative effect in me on the inside, I now have a pure heart. I have a good conscience. I have a sincere faith. And what is the evidence of that? Love. Love. Love for God. Love for neighbor. As Piper said, the Love is the overflow of joy in God. We might say gratitude to God, which gladly meets the needs of others. Because once I understand God's love for me, how can I not share this love with others? It is the best love a person can ever know. Why settle for anything less? And yet, sadly, people do. Look at verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these... All right? That's a pronoun. What's the antecedent? What does these refer to? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, 
have wandered away. They've swerved from these internal features that God's gospel creates in us. They've swerved from these and have wandered away into what? Vain discussion. Not love, but vain discussion. Empty pursuits, conversations, speculations. Verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law. See, that's what rabbis were considered. And these guys wanted to be experts in the Old Testament. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You say, like, I meet people like that every day. Well, in this case, they were certainly in the church. That's a dangerous combination, isn't it? Ignorance and arrogance. People that understand neither what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Remind me of a cartoon I saw one time of a, of a, of a pastor at the pulpit and the, and, the, and the view was like someone looking over his shoulder at the pulpit as he was preaching. The people are out there. And he had a note in his, in his manuscript and it said, third point week, preach louder. Pound the pulpit harder, right? Because you don't have any really good point to make. And that's what these guys are. They're, they're, they're ignorant, but they're also arrogant. And these are the undesirable qualities that characterize fanciful teachers. Uh, they're false teachers, but I call them fanciful teachers because they didn't start off as false teachers. At some point, they left the solid foundation of God's Word and they started looking for deeper meanings. They started looking beneath the Scriptures or beyond the Scriptures for something that was more tantalizing and, and seemingly relevant and interesting to the people to whom they ministered. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell make a good point about this in their commentary. They say, and I quote, I have it up here on the screen, it was not so much that they set out to be heretical, they simply wanted to go deeper into the Scriptures. They wanted to go beyond the simple exegesis of Paul. And by giving the people an event, allegorical meaning, simple stories would reveal fantastic truths. They did not set out to abandon the gospel, but in fact, their progressive accretions smothered the gospel. End quote. How do people drift away from the gospel? How do they wander away from this? One step at a time. One step at a time. And this takes us back to the frog in the kettle. Beware of gradual changes that lead to disastrous consequences. Whether it be gender issues, definition of marriage, so many things come into play where we can be tempted to compromise. And that's why we must, as a church, embrace God's truth and oppose whatever draws people away from it. See, that's the thing. We can say that we embrace God's truth, but are we sticking with the Scriptures and opposing anything in our own lives or in our relationships that would draw people away from the truth of Scripture. We have to be so careful about this. I read a great article, I'll pass it on to you, for growth group discussion, if I can remember. 
um, on the chosen. And I know some of you enjoy that. I've seen a partial episode myself, not saying it's sinful to watch it or anything. But a gal wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition that says, you know, as I began to read the scriptures, I started just thinking of things in, on the movie The Chosen. And she started to see that, became more fascinated with this show and its projection of what scripture says than allowing scripture itself to speak to my mind and using the power of thought and imagination God has given me to envision the truth that God has for me. And so I say that simply as a caution. Again, not saying it's bad to watch those shows or even to read a biblical novel. But if we're not careful, we can start to say, well, this is how it is. And, and this is what happened in Scripture. This is how it played out. And all of a sudden, the fiction gets blurred and merged in and muddied with the facts. And pretty soon, we lose our sense of discernment. How do people drift from the gospel one step at a time? So we must embrace God's truth and oppose anything that would draw people away from it. John Stott, in closing, gives us two practical steps, two practical tests, if you will, for all teaching. This is good. You may want to write this down based on this passage. Two practical tests for all teaching. Number one, the test of faith. Does it come from God that is, divine revelation, or does it come from human imagination, which is speculation? Is it revelation, or is it speculation? That's the test of faith. Number two, the test of love. Does it promote unity in the body of Christ, or if not, since sometimes the truth itself can divide, is it irresponsibly divisive? That is to say, is it causing needless controversy among believers? Remember this. Right doctrine always promotes the glory of God and the good of the church. Right doctrine always promotes the glory of God, not man, and the good of the church. Whereas false teaching does neither. So whatever you do, brothers and sisters, guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. It's the only thing that saves us. It is the only thing that truly unites us. It's the only thing that will really sustain us in life's most difficult seasons. Nothing in all the world is more precious to the Christian than the word of God. And remember this, that the gospel that we guard today, the truth that we uphold and defend today in the power of the Holy Spirit is the gospel that will be celebrated for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, as Brother Dave prayed earlier in our service, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us not to stray from your truth, but to affix ourselves to it. Help us to tether ourselves to the truth of Scripture, to ground ourselves in the glorious message of the gospel. Help us to uphold it, defend it, declare it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.